So I have uh, noticed lately that at a time when we have fewer answers than ever about the future of the Jewish community and humanity itself, the more we want to try and come up with answers anyway. Nowhere is that more evident than in the constant churning out of think pieces, op-eds, Twitter and Facebook posts and reposts. It's enough to keep your head spinning. But I try to read what little I can because I, like other Jewish leaders, am trying to figure out what this new reality means for us and our tradition going forward. This week, I read two different articles, one by Rabbi John Lehner, a modern Orthodox rabbi in Brooklyn, was titled, I Hate Zoom Havdalah. His basic premise was, well, you can guess, that uh, maybe the universe is giving us this time to turn our religiosity inward, to engage in reflective practice and prayer within our own homes without constantly trying to recreate something virtually. Stop trying to Zoom everything, he said. Sit by yourself and let your Judaism evolve in solitude. The other article was titled, The Trouble with Solitude. Its author, Mark Oppenheimer of Tablet Magazine and the Unorthodox podcast, didn't get into his personal opinions on virtual Havdalah, but he made a case for the fact that religious life needs community, requires connection, and cannot live on solitude alone. Two articulate positions published in well-known online Jewish magazines in complete and utter disagreement about the way to properly do Jewish through this crisis. And we're not surprised, are we? After all, as the saying goes, two Jews, three opinions. Our tradition loves disagreement and wrestling and not taking the black and white approach to how to do things the right way. Well, it does, and also it doesn't. Judaism contradicts even itself in that way. For this week, at the very end of Leviticus, in the double portion of Bahar Bechukotai, Torah turns into God's ultimate think piece. This one titled, Do Exactly As I Say or Else. This will not be the last time we hear this refrain. If you follow my laws, all will go well for you. If you disobey me, you will run away even when no one chases you. Eat your own babies. Lose everything that you have. So what are we to believe? The all or nothing, my way or the highway God of the Torah? Or the multivocality of Jewish life as it has developed over centuries and continues to develop to this day. In answering that question, I think of my own family and how we would have fared if this Levitical handbook were imposed upon us. There would be some punishments handed down, that's for sure, even for the rabbi whose Jewish practice still looks very different from the strict expectations of our Torah portion. I think especially of my younger brother, 
Maybe, and I'm going to share it with you right now if I can, because of a picture that popped up on my this year today of him graduating from college four years ago, which showed up in my photo memories. That was the summer I forced him to meet me in Europe for a big sister post-college adventure through London, Scotland, and Ireland. We sat in a tiny restaurant in Edinburgh, splitting a bottle of wine and eating the most delicious local cheese plate. And we talked all night about free will, what happens after we die, and more. My sweet, brilliant brother can talk about philosophy, ethics, and morality all night long. But his Jewish practice and identity? Well, let's just say he did show up for the family Zoom call on the first night of Seder this year. And when my mom asked him what he and his fiance were having for dinner afterwards, he shrugged and said, uh, mac and cheese? I texted him that photo from his college graduation. And then I told him I wanted to talk about him in a sermon. And while I was getting his permission, could he please try to describe his relationship to Judaism for me? I was trying to figure out how to articulate the fact that I know deep in my bones that my brother deserves only goodness in life. And also that he is flagrantly in violation of the stringencies of Bihar Bihukotai. Here is what he said, and I am reading this verbatim from our text message history. Okay, I have a weird analogy for you. I'm like a tofu dish. This is where you can tell we were raised by a vegetarian father. I'm like a tofu dish, he said. And in the beginning, I was in a marinade. And one of the ingredients of the marinade was Judaism and I'm not in the marinade anymore. And maybe I've gone through several other preparations, like I've been battered and baked and fried or whatever. And there wasn't really any Judaism in a lot of those parts. So I'm not gonna be on the menu as Judaism tofu with peanut sauce or anything. But you know, if you dig deep enough and have a refined palate, you still get that Judaism flavor. So basically, I don't think of myself as practicing Judaism or following God, but I guess in some ways I am because mom and dad raised me and they do. So the parts that stuck with me don't even feel like Judaism anymore. They just feel like me, even if Judaism in the marinade is how they got there. Also, now I'm hungry, so I'm gonna grab a snack. I don't know, did that make any sense? I almost at that point made him write this entire sermon. Of course it makes sense. And I would bet that each one of you watching this evening and everyone who isn't watching has their own metaphor for how Judaism operates in their lives. And that metaphor I'd be willing to bet is a lot more loving and forgiving, a lot more tofu in a marinade than the operating image of these sections of the Torah, which invoke right and wrong, reward and punishment with such stringency. We might just say then that this particular piece of Torah no longer serves us. We live in a time where more than ever, we need as many ideas, opinions, and creative metaphors for how Judaism can function in our lives 
than ever before. And we certainly don't need the kind of language that would make people like my brother feel like they no longer deserve access to the Jewish marinade or to blessings and prosperity. But unsurprisingly, I found that even this section of the Torah offers an interpretive opening for a little more nuance. It comes at the very end of the litany of punishments that God will wreak upon the people if they don't follow God's commandments. God promises that despite it all, God will still be this people's God, will still remember the covenant made with their ancestors. And then the text does something very interesting. Throughout the Torah, when an ancestral connection with God is mentioned, we expect the familiar phrasing, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here, that same connection is evoked. And this time, and this time alone, of all the places in Torah, the order is reversed. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, with Isaac, and also with Abraham. Here is my antidote to the harshness that comes before. God seems to surface from the angry binary of right and wrong and says, oh yes, I made a covenant with an ancestor who believed in wrestling divinity, not simply succumbing to it. Oh yes, I honor the newest generations, the ones who will have ideas and interpretations, thoughts and think pieces that will open up far more space in my Levitical text than I could ever have conceived. The lesson I take is this, despite the voices, even the divinely inspired ones that might tell us there is one good way which will lead to our success and one bad way which will lead to our destruction. Life isn't so simple. There's no one right way to do Judaism. And there is no one right way to be human. There is no perfect image or metaphor or idea that works to bring every person meaning. So it's up to us to puzzle through hard things and find the meanings and the metaphors for ourselves. And if all of that feels a little daunting, well, there's always another book of Torah ahead and a new cycle of Torah after that. There is always a new chapter to enter, a graduation from one stage of life to the next. You can't get it wrong and we're all muddling through it together. Moving, we pray from strength to strength to strength.